hello, my name is John Andrews, editor-in-chief of HonestBoozReviews.com. I am Tyler, also known as Hip Hop's True Form. <laughs> and I'm Steve. Welcome to another episode of your favorite drunk education podcast, Wikipedia. This is a very special episode for us, and I'm going to let John tell you why. John? Yeah. So I was contacted by Crown Royale uh, uh, to go over their new uh, whiskey that they wanted uh, my site to review. Uh, it's a Texas Mesquite-style whiskey. Unfortunately, because it's a Texas Mesquite-style whiskey, I can't really review it because there's not really a whole lot of other Texas Mesquite-style whiskeys to review against. So we can't form a baseline. But I was like, hey, I know a podcast that would love that. And it's us. Yeah. Ta-da. So, surprise. Only, what is this, six episodes in? And we're getting free shit. That sounds good to me. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. So, uh, let's all pour ourselves a glass and give it a shot. They, uh, we were expecting tiny bottles, like, you know, the little nips that uh, alcoholics buy an entire bag's worth. And they sent us full bottles, like full 750 milliliter bottles, which that's great. To that's all very three generous. of us. This is, this is fine. <laughs> yeah, to all, to all three of us in different states, so I'm a big fan of that. All right, so uh, it definitely has like a woody mesquite scent to it. I, really, I like that. It's not overpowering. Ooh. It doesn't just end up smelling like uh, dirt, like an Isla Scotch, because Isla Scotches are trash. Wow, you're trash. I, I can't believe that you can say that confidently on a whiskey podcast. Even if I'm, you believe it, I would just think you would just be like, I'll downplay that. No, nah, I was just saying it to be inflammatory, because I know that's 90% of what Tyler has. Mm. I'm right, aren't I, Tyler? Shut up. I want to make sauce with this. Yeah, that might be good. Like make Ooh. a, like a, like combine it with maple syrup for some sort of a kind of boozy pancake sauce. Oh no, I was thinking of making my when you make your own barbecue sauce. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's got some. It's got too. some spiciness to it. That's like, what well, I I have never had that in an alcoholic beverage. So. Yeah, like it. It doesn't really taste like it at first. Like I don't really get much of the mesquite flavor, but after a minute, I like it. It comes at just the right strength where I'm not like, oh god, I just got hit in the face with a pile of mulch. Yeah, but, you you don't think, okay, I've just bitten into those wood things you throw on a grill, and I'm just chewing that <laughs> like some mm. sort of weird manly gum or some nonsense. This here's the manly mesquite gum, made only from the finest charred oak trees. Mmm, briquettes. <laughs> All right, so yeah, this is this is not bad. I think I would, I this will is, definitely yeah. be fine going through this bottle. I will be happy to drink it all night. So again, thanks to Crown for sending us these bottles. Um, if anyone else out there stumbles across this and has the power to send us free whiskey, please, dear God, do it. So I have to, so I can stop buying it and getting yelled at by my wife. Or don't, so that his wife can keep yelling at him. Either way, we will talk about your whiskey. <laughs> Either way, we will talk about your whiskey. All right. So for those of you not familiar with the format of the show, what we do is we each pull up Wikipedia.org, click on random page, and then between the three of us, we'll decide which one we want to start on. We'll read about that page. We'll educate ourselves as well as you. And then eventually, when we get tired of the page, we will decide to click on some link on that page. 
to go to a new page and learn about that. The only real catch is that we have to go to pages that are linked from the one we're currently on. We can't just decide we want to look something else up. It has to be an active link on that page. And also no editing the page to add a link in for ourselves either. So everybody got Wikipedia pulled up? Yep. Yep. All right, let's hit that random article button. Come on. Okay. What? What did you guys get? Uh, I got I got another bug. <laughs> Are you serious? You got another bug? I got another bug. That's like four out of six episodes you've gotten bugs. I got a lake. I got rowing at the 1908 Summer Olympics men's cockless pair. Oh, I'm gonna man. I'm gonna go ahead and say let's do that one. Yeah, it's though... very short, unfortunately. It's basically oh. just the results. Oh. I think we're uh, gonna end up going with the bug. What did you get? Mine, mine is Lake Toba. It's an Indonesian lake, which is apparently also a super volcano. Is there much to the article? Uh, yeah, there's actually quite a lot here. Oh, uh, there's a catastrophe theory about this lake. Oh, we're reading it then. When things can go wrong, we're going to read about it. <laughs> All right. Uh, I'll post that into the chat. All right. Go ahead and do that. All right. That's that's interesting. It's a little different. Different than bugs. Yeah. All right. Uh, since it's your page, John, why don't you get us started? Okay. So, uh, like I said, Lake Toba is a lake in Indonesia occupying the caldera of a supervolcano. Yo. Uh, it has – it's actually – you know, fairly small. It's only about 62 miles long, 19 miles wide. Uh, but I mean, that's it, not small. Uh, okay. <laughs> I'm just saying, we've got some great lakes, you know. We have some acceptable lakes. I live near one. <laughs> uh, but apparently, uh, about 70,000 years ago, uh, there was a, a super volcanic eruption. That climate change event happened. Ooh. Uh, it had global consequences for the human populations at the time, meaning it killed most of them. <laughs> Hell yeah! <laughs> yeah, it created the population bottleneck in uh, Central, uh, Central East Africa and India, affecting the human worldwide population. It has been accepted that the eruption led to a volcanic winter with worldwide decreases in temperature between 5 and 9 degrees Fahrenheit. Jesus. That's significant. That's yeah. serious. Like, shit is gonna die. I mean, everything dies. Yeah, everything. La last I checked, the climate change was about stopping one to two degrees. Yeah, like, current anthropogenic climate change that we're trying to fight on Earth now and doing a bang-up job on, we're trying to limit a change of three and a half degrees Fahrenheit. This is three times that. Yikes. Yeah. So, so I guess the only way to combat global warming is volcanoes. Make, make a volcano erupt. Let's yeah, do right, it. Perfect. Let's drop a nuclear bomb into Mount Helena. Just see oh, what happens. <laughs> just, just see where that goes. Who needs Yosemite? Who needs the planet Earth? <laughs> Listen, who deserves the planet Earth? Not humans. You know who does? Bugs. All the bugs. bugs. <laughs> They've been here for billions of years, and they'll be here long after. So the Toba event, it was the last in a series of at least four caldera-forming eruptions at this location. 
I I like that it's like so long ago that they have to be vague. They're like earlier calderas formed seven hundred eighty eight thousand, give or take two thousand years ago. Yeah. It's like ish. I mean, they're only finding out about it because they're like literally measuring ash layer deposits. Yeah. It's not like those have like a timestamp date of a newspaper saying, "Ah, oh, yes, this happened seventy thousand BC." Yeah, the uh, VEI, by the way, stands for Volcanic Explosivity Index. This eruption had an estimated VEI of 8, making it the largest known volcanic eruption in the last 25 million years. Ah, damn. That's goddamn. What happens when you turn that shit to 11? I don't want to know. I (laughs) think the world becomes lava. You played the game The Floor is Lava as a Child? It's here. The whole floor. Everything is lava. Only the International Space Station will survive. Oh yeah, that reminds me. I recently read about um, so recent uh, changes to the modeling of the asteroid impact that killed the dinosaurs has said that the more likely result was not that it you know had a similar result to this where it created a whole cloud of ash and drastically dropped temperatures on the Earth and then that's what killed everything. The more likely result is that it was such a massive impact it created a superheated ball of plasma that traveled all the way around the Earth and killed almost everything within two hours of impact. Cool. Like, they've <laughs> said literally, within two hours, 99.9% of the world was on fire. Okay. <laughs> that I mean, that would be an interesting thing to check. You'd be like, okay, can I date all of these last fossils to the same day? Yeah, and you're like, huh, they all seem to be very similar. And also burnt. (laughs) The eruption was large enough to have deposited an ash layer approximately six inches thick all over South Asia. At one site site in central India, the Toba ash layer today is up to 20 feet thick. (laughs) Oh my god. By the way. Uh, the collapse formed a caldera that filled with water, hence creating the lake. So it blew itself up its own lake. Yeah, it blew itself <laughs> up, and water was like, "All right." It's like, well, if this is a hole. I don't know. Fill it. The eruption lasted two weeks. Oh my god! <laughs> I mean, it, it's not a it, it's not a regular volcano. It's a super volcano for a reason. I mean. If there is going to be an official scientific super volcano term, I think this has to qualify. Like, if there's super volcanoes and this doesn't qualify, like, what are those? Uh, Evidence from studies of mitochondrial DNA suggests humans passed through a genetic bottleneck around this time that reduced genetic diversity below what would be expected given the age of the species. Uh, According to the Toba catastrophe theory uh, proposed in 1998... The effects of the Toba eruption may have decreased the size of human populations to only a few tens of thousands of individuals. Oh, it's contested, though, because there's not similar effects seen on other animal species. Yeah, and I guess you'd expect that from every other animal that survived. Yeah, but at the same time, uh, other animals were like, oh, there's a super volcano. Guess I better die or just fuck my way out of this, whereas humans are like, oh, there's a super volcano. <laughs> just gonna fuck my way out of this. There's a super Describing. volcano, it's going on. Hey, maybe we should just leave. I mean, that pretty much describes my early 20s. Leave, die, or fuck my way out of it. Yikes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I, I fucked my way into problems more than I fucked my oh, way out of them. Oh, cool. Let's get to the scary part. Recent activity. Oh, boy. Oh, 70,000 years ago. Okay. Recent 70,000 <laughs> years. Some parts of the caldera have shown uplift due to partially partial refilling of the magma chamber. There have been earthquakes recorded related to it in 1892, 1916, and the 1920s. Also in 1987, along the southern shore of the lake at a depth of about seven miles. So uh, this uh, volcano, it's uh, like its subduction zone, like like where the fault is in the uh, tectonic plates, uh, is apparently very active. And the, the seabed near the west coast of the Sumatra has had several major earthquakes since 95, including the 9.1 2004 oh. Indian Ocean earthquake. 9.1? 9.1. That probably killed everything. And 2005, they had an 8.7. So, looking good. Again, <laughs> animals just get the fuck out of those areas. Or die. Oh, people. I'm glad there's two sentences about people that live near there. <laughs> oh, yeah, by the way, by the way. You know, it's to ignore all the, uh, all the uh, you know, disasters and stuff. The doom, death, let's, the earthquakes. Let's, let's talk about the most, culture. Most of the people who live around Lake Toba are ethnically Bataks. Traditional Batak houses are noted for their distinctive roofs. Yes, I get it. Very mature, John. We, it sounds we like booty. Listen, give we me the all, booty. Give me the booty. We were all give laughing. Me the in our, we were all laughing in our heads. Oh, that's a nice picture. If you scroll down, there's a nice panorama of the lake. That looks beautiful. Yeah. And does does not at all look like it's full of impending death. It doesn't look deadly. Um, I mean, if you scroll down, however. There's a picture of what the caldera looks like with a dome in the middle of the lake. This is a reminder. Still there. By the way, this still exists. Oh, yeah, there it is. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's that looks concerning. <laughs> All right, so we're pretty much at the end of the article. Um, oh, I guess there also was a, uh, a ferry that sunk in June of this year. Um, oh, look at that. The incident Ooh. caused the death of 190 people. Damn. I mean... Oh, they overloaded the vessel and it was operating in rough weather conditions. There were 50 cars and 100 motorcycles, which also all sank into the lake. No shit. Like, they didn't float away. <laughs> nobody nobody carried their car to shore. I'm going to drive my way out of this. <laughs> honk, honk. <laughs> that, that's admittedly terrible. Like, 190 people did die. But, you know, not changing the population of the entire people on earth so you know this is just a minor incident in its history yeah you know an area is fucked up when 200 people die and you're like you know what that's the nicest thing this lake has it could have been worse could have been worse could have been, been way worse <laughs> we, we could have been left with 190 people all, all right. right so what are we gonna jump to from here yo we should go to volcanic winter because that sounds hardcore uh that does sound pretty hardcore where was volcanic winter I guess I'm just Such searching for the top. winter. Alright, Volcanic Winter is a reduction in global temperatures caused by volcanic ash and droplets of sulfuric acid and water obscuring the sun and raising Earth's albedo, increasing the reflection of solar radiation after a large, particularly explosive volcanic eruption. Cool. Yeah, long term, actually. Oh, I didn't realize that actually happened in the 90s. The explosion of Mount Pinatubo, a stratovolcano in the Philippines, cooled global temperatures for about two to three years. Oh. Go Mount Pinatubo. Uh, Krakatoa, 
Record snowfalls. Snowfalls were recorded worldwide for, for one winter after Krakatoa erupted. I think I remember reading, like, when Krakatoa erupted, people heard it from, like, hundreds of miles away. Yeah, I believe that. Yeah. Like, could you imagine just, like, sitting on your porch and all of a sudden you just, like, your entire house gets shaken by an explosion and you're like, What the hell was that? I should find out where that was. And you look it up on your phone and they're like, Oh yeah, something exploded in Brazil. And you're like, Uh... <laughs> <laughs> why was i able to hear that krakatoa is not in brazil i don't know where krakatoa is don't at me about saying brazil do say, not at me pretty sure it's russia uh okay so there's there is also an 1815 eruption of mount tambora a stratovolcano in indonesia again yeah krakatoa is also in indonesia i'm, uh, I'm noticing a trend here yeah i'm also noticing a trend I'm, i don't want to go to indonesia i suppose if it goes it we're all going. Yeah. So that occasion, uh, midsummer frost in New York State and June snowfalls in New England and Newfoundland and Labrador. <laughs> June snowfalls. Snowing in June in like Massachusetts and Connecticut. That sounds awful. Came known as the year without a summer. That makes sense. It sounds like the oh. sappiest like romance song. Yeah, this sounds like a super emo song about like a guy who got broken up with in April and was just like brokenhearted about it all summer. Yeah, there's there, there's going to be like lots of lyrics about you know how his sunshine is gone. Oh my his god, days don't are do dark. this, John. <laughs> <laughs> I know you saying, can do this. Don't do this. Someone out there is, just needs to write the song. They'll listen to our show. They'll send it in to us. That's. I don't know if that's a good or a bad outcome. <laughs> Let's see what the effects on life are. Uh, bad. Things die. Oh, yeah. hey, there's a picture of Lake Toba. <laughs> oh, look at that. <laughs> what, a co- what a coincidence. Uh, the causes of the population bottleneck, uh, a sharp decrease in a species population, blah, 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 is attributed to volcanic winters by some researchers. Such events may diminish population to... Quote, levels low enough for evolutionary changes, which occur much faster in smaller populations. Oh, man. Do you know how fucked the world would be if, like, something like Lake Toba erupted again? And it just blew out most of the population except, like, rural Arkansas? And they're like, well, up to us to repopulate the Earth. Oh, no. Like, let's just just close it all down at that point. (laughs) You know what? I quit. I quit. Just Shut. chop off everyone's dicks and just just be done with it. Shut it down. Just set up Earth for two. <laughs> Dude, I'm so ready for Earth 2. Earth take two. I can't wait for them to unlock the new Mars playable location. The Mars DLC? Yeah. I'll start a new character over on Mars. <laughs> just log out of this one. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, that Moon DLC was only like really short and it didn't last that long. And there was, there was not much content there and like you had to complete a bunch of really specific stupid quests to unlock it. Only like oh, 20 people ever unlocked it. It's stupid. It really had the effects on some people's mental state. I mean, people just kept kept talking about John Madden. I just didn't know what was going on. <laughs> Good reference. Good reference. All right, where are we going to go from here? This is a little bit shorter of an article. Yeah, I was expecting it to be a little longer. I guess we could read about Krakatoa. Let's just hang out talking about volcanoes for a little bit. Or we could read about uh, the year without a summer. Okay. Let's do the year Year without a summer. summer. So that we don't just sit there and keep reading about volcanoes for an hour and a half. 
1800 and froze to death. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, why did they go with the freaking indie song title romance instead of 1800 and froze to death? There's the metal version. All right, guys, tag yourself. I'm year without a summer. Uh, I am absolutely the poverty year as a actor. <laughs> and I'm 1800 and froze to death. <laughs> Jesus. Evidence uh, suggests the anomaly was predominantly a volcanic winter event caused by the massive eruption of Mount Tambora in the Dutch East Indies, the largest eruption in at least 1,300 years after the extreme weather events of 535 to 536. And the year without a summer was an agricultural disaster. Oh, imagine that. That that makes sense. The whole, you know, snow in June. In the yeah. spring of uh spring and summer of eighteen sixteen in North America, a persistent dry fog was observed in parts of eastern United States. The fog reddened reddened and dimmed oh. the sunlight. Such was sunspots were visible bleh, were visible to the naked eye. Holy crap. That's so cool. That is hardcore. Like, being able to see sunspots. That's fucked up. If you go further down, in Cape May, New Jersey, frost was reported five nights in a row in late June. (laughs) At the church family of Shakers near New Lebanon, New York, Nicholas Bennett wrote in May 1816, all was froze, and the hills were, quote, barren like winter. Temperatures went below freezing almost every day in May. The ground froze on June 9th. On July 7th, it was so cold, everything had stopped growing. The Berkshires had frost again on August 23rd. Jeez. Lake and river ice were observed as far south as northwestern Pennsylvania. God! In July and August. Yeah, in July and August. Sorry. Frost was reported as far south as Virginia on August 20th. Oh, boy. I mean, it's just a sort of a, like a grim view of like, oh, what, what are the effects of climate change? Regional farmers did succeed in bringing some crops to maturity, but corn and other grain prices rose dramatically. The price of oats, for example, rose from 12 cents per bushel, $3.40 per cubed meter in 1815, the equivalent of $1.60 today, to 92 cents per bushel, the equivalent of $13.27 today. Almost 10 times as expensive. Looks like it's the year for oats! (laughs) Eat shit, corn! (laughs) My time to shine! Do you have any oats, brother? (laughs) No oats. In Germany, the crisis was severe. Food prices rose sharply. With the cause of the problems unknown, people demonstrated in front of grain markets and bakeries, and later riots, arson, and looting took place in many European cities. It was the worst famine of 19th century Europe. I mean, there's always a saying that a a man is nine meals from anarchy. That sounds about right. That's pretty much what was happening in Europe. I like that they were demonstrating outside bakers, like, hey, we know you have food in there. And the guy's like, no, I don't. I want to sell it. Why would I not want to sell it? Like, here, come here, look at this door. That's where I keep the grain. There's nothing in there. It's an empty room. That's the point! With, uh, in southern Switzerland, uh, the summers were so cold that an ice dam formed below a tongue of uh, Gietro... I, I'm, I'm assuming I'm pronouncing that right. The glacier high in the Val de... Oh my Val God. de Bans? We're just going to say Val de Bans. Let's just give it a French name. Okay. 
despite engin- oh come on dude despite engineer Ignaz Venet's efforts to drain the growing lake the ice dam collapsed catastrophically Ooh. in June 1818 yeah that doesn't sound good that sounds like the most metal shit ever so basically a dam formed and it caused something it caused like a bunch of water to fill up and before they could get the water out it it collapsed and just flooded everything I'm guessing decimated everything yeah no, it looks like between 1809 and 1815 there were six volcanic eruptions with volcanic eruption explosivity indexes of at least four that's a lot the first one was the 1808 mystery eruption what oh no <laughs> oh i know where we're going next oh, <laughs> we're gonna just stick with the theme in the southwestern Pacific, uh, one in the Caribbean in 1812, another in the Dutch East Indies in 1812, one in Japan in 1813, one in the Philippines in 1814, and then Mount Tambora in 1815, which was a 7 on the VEI. Remember that uh, the one that killed everything in Indonesia was an 8. <laughs> Jeez. And the mystery one was a 6. <sighs> This period also occurred during a period of relatively low solar activity, which ran from December 1810 to May 1823. So that makes sense. If the sun was also giving off less light and energy and less light and energy was getting through. Oh, Europe was still recovering from the Napoleonic Wars at this time, too. Oh, yeah. no. Even better. Yeah, and there was famine in Switzerland... Huge storms and abnormal rainfall flooding the Rhine. A major typhus epidemic. Even better. Yeah, approximate European fatality total? 200,000. Half of them in Ireland. Yikes. The eruption of Tambora caused Hungary to experience brown snow. Ugh. Ugh. The corn crop in New England ripened so poorly that no more than a quarter of it was usable. The crop failures of the year without a summer may have helped shape the settling of the American heartland, as many thousands of people, particularly farm families who were wiped out, left New England for western New York and the Northwest Territory in search of a more hospitable climate, richer soil, and better growing conditions. Interesting. Huh. It was so bad it made people consider the flyover states. Yeah. So bad people moved to Iowa because that was an improvement. Vermont alone experienced a decrease in population between 10 and 15,000, erasing seven years of population growth. Womp womp. Vermont's nice, though. Yeah, I don't have anything to say bad about it. Just saying. It's, it's, huh. it's just Vermont. Apparently, this led to Mary Shelley writing Frankenstein. That's, oh. that's an interesting cause and effect relationship. Yeah. Got real that whole butterfly effect. It's like a you know explosion of a volcano goes off in Indonesia. Oh, okay. This this is the uh, the the context. In June 1816, incessant rainfall during that wet, ungenial summer forced Mary Shelley, Percy Bysshe Shelley, Lord Byron, and John William Polidori and their friends to stay indoors at Villa Diodati, overlooking Lake Geneva, for much of their Swiss holiday they decided to have a contest to see who could write the scariest story, leading Shelley to write Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus, and Lord Byron to write a fragment, which was later used as inspiration for the vampire, a precursor to Dracula. Oh. oh so it's good to know that terrible things still uh, can cause some goodness to come out of it. You know, Dracula and Frankenstein. That universal 
monster cinematic universe could not fail to exist. Could without... not fail to exist. Yeah. Without good, good, without a volcano. Good Englishing. Yeah, I was gonna say it could not exist, but it really doesn't. It really doesn't. It tried. Uh, real quick, I just was looking down at comparable events, and in the middle, there's, ironically, the Heaven Lake eruption of Pike Two Mountain between modern day North Korea and the People's Republic of China in 969. Hmm. Heaven Lake. I just like Heaven Lake erupted. <laughs> It's just bringing all the religious goodness to the people in the form of fiery hot magma. Ah, uh, damn. People did beat us to the song. Oh, uh, did they? Yeah. Oh. American Murder Song, a musical project by Terence Zudnik and Zar Hendelman, uses the year without a summer as a backdrop for a collection of murder ballads. <laughs> a collection of murder ballads is a really good phrase. Murder ballads. All right. So we can go to the mystery eruption, but no more volcanoes after this, all right? Uh, we have okay. to get onto a different topic. Man, volcanoes are cool. They are pretty cool. Uh, where was the mystery volcano? Or uh, mystery it, eruption. It was under causes. A colossal volcanic eruption in the in the uh, volcanic explosivity index six range is believed to have taken place in late 1808 and is suspected of contributing to a period of global cooling that lasted for years. Uh, let's see. Where's the where's the mystery come in? Yeah. Adding to the mystery was the expectation that any eruptions of that magnitude should have been noticed at the time. I found it in the background section. A study mm. of Greenland and Antarctic ice cores in the 1990s found markers that implied a massive massive volcanic eruption had occurred in early 1809. The problem facing climatologists and volcanologists was that there were no recorded eruptions of the order significance needed in this period. So they like they found lots of evidence that a volcano erupted somewhere, but no idea where. If a volcano blows up in the woods, then no one's around to hear it. Did they it... still die from the volcano ash and yes, magma. Apparently. De Caldas, uh, who is it? Uh, Colombian scientist Francisco José de Caldas served as director of the Astronomical Observatory of Bogota between 1805 and 1810, and in 1809 reported a transparent cloud that obstructs the sun's brilliance in Bogota. It was first observed by him on December 11th, 1808, and was visible across Colombia. So he reported it in 1809, which means it lasted a while. The cloud might have been a dry fog. Hey, there it is again. Yeah? I mean, that they didn't know what the hell was going on. They just know, like, oh, that looks like fog, but it's not being burned off by the summer heat, like uh, by the sun. Uh, just one quick thing. Uh, dry fog is uh, apparently a sulfuric acid aerosol, which the other article did not specify. Oh, yeah. yeah. It just assumed we knew. Yeah. Rude. Yeah, you idiots. Yeah, don't you know we're dumb as hell and drunk, Wikipedia? Come on. So, uh, next time you turn on the Weather Channel and it says, uh, expect dry fog, be scared. Sulfuric acid cloud. It looks like there was like all sorts of volcanoes in the area that they're like maybe they erupted. Uh, like there was an eruption in the Azores. There was tall volcano in the Philippines all around 1808, but not at the right time and not strong enough. So just an unsolved mystery that'll probably never be solved because we can't go back in time and look. Dun dun dun. So we know from from past history, do not go into science pages because you get stuck there. Yeah. So we're not gonna go to sulfuric acid. <laughs> I think it's Tonga time. 
Oh, is it Tonga time? Yeah, I think Tonga it's Tonga time. I think it's Tonga. We're going time. to Tonga. I think it's Tonga time. The uh, the sentence that was in was an area to the tropics, in the tropics to the west of Colombia and Peru, with candidate volcanoes and with little reporting at the time, is the southwestern Pacific Ocean between Indonesia and Tonga. All right, so it's Tonga time then. We're gonna check out Tonga. The Kingdom of Tonga. Polynesian sovereign state and archipelago comprising 169 islands. Nice. 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 (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Tonga became known in the West as the Friendly Islands because of the congenial reception accorded to Captain James Cook on his first visit in 1773. It's friendly. Yeah. According to the writer William Mariner, the chiefs wanted to kill James Cook during the gathering, but could not agree on a plan. <laughs> so friendly! <laughs> so friendly. I was going to say, didn't the Tuatonga Empire like try to take over the whole ocean one time? Eh, details. From 1900 to 1970, Tonga had British protected state status, with the United Kingdom looking after its foreign affairs under a treaty of friendship. However, the country never relinquished its sovereignty to any foreign power. Damn. Oh, so they're they're still independent. In 2010, very recently, Tonga took a decisive path towards becoming a constitutional monarchy oh. rather than a traditional absolute kingdom after legislative reforms passed a course for the first partial representative elections. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. In 2010. Listen, do you know how hard it is to get internet in the middle of the Pacific Ocean? I mean, here's the thing. They're, they made it so that they have not just a king. The UK still has that problem. Yeah, but the in the UK, it's a figurehead. Like, the king and queen, they're just there to be pretty. And they're not doing a great job. <laughs> I don't know if that was a dig at uh, old, old Liz, or if you're just not really a fan of the new royals. <laughs> no, that was, that was the queen. It was a dig at the queen and, the, the, you know, the whole fact that uh, her husband's dead. <laughs> Great joke, me. Just, Very, just uh, going for the heart. Yeah, I'm not allowed back in London, I don't think. Just say, the Queen Mother's apparently not estranged. Nah, she's nice. She's fine. I like that she pissed off all the, uh, like, I think it was some Saudi royalty was visiting, and she demanded that she got to drive them around, even though she doesn't even drive anymore, just to piss them off. Because, <laughs> like, women can't drive. She's like, well, you're in England, so I drive. Austronesian, I, that is... That's a word I've never heard before. The Austronesian languages. Huh. It's basically like the languages that are northern New Zealand, a whole lot of the Philippines, and Madagascar. Scholars have much debated the exact dates of the initial settlement of Tonga, but recently it's been thought the first settlers came back came to the oldest town, Nukuleka, about 826 BC. Nukuleka. Not much is known before European contact because of a lack of a writing system. Do they even still, do they still even, I assume they have a written language at this point. I would hope if they're going to have a fucking constitution, they need to write it down. <laughs> well, they have an official, their official languages are English and Tongan. Tongan? Okay. So assumingly they have some, it's a written version of that. The official religion is Wesleyan? Really? All right. What, what's Wesleyan? <laughs> what's Wesleyan? Uh, it's, a, it's a subsect of Christianity, just uh, not a terribly exciting one. Boring. I, like, it, 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 if, you're, if you're gonna go Christian, pick just pick Catholicism, like everybody else did. It's a new island. They got there first. That's all that matters. Yeah. Oh, the U.S. first showed up in 1840. Oh. So not only are the the fact that they maintain their sovereignty 
uh, from the British significant. They're actually the only Pacific nation to retain its monarchical government. Huh. That is impressive. Yeah, and their monarchy follows an uninterrupted succession of, of rulers from one family. Wow. Yeah. Like as far back as they're aware, because it says it said earlier, like their oral history has actually survived and has been recorded yeah. after the arrival of Europeans. But yeah, citation needed. Citation needed, sure, but even if it's not a totally uninterrupted succession, let's say like twice it changed, that still means three families in charge for almost three thousand years. Yeah, that's impressive. I just like that they kept their sovereignty. Yeah. Because they're like, they see what all the British have done, and they're like, no, no, yeah. no. <laughs> to be fair, how are the British even going to check in on them? They're down, like, middle of nowhere, kind of near Australia, but still pretty far away. That's even a pain in the ass for the U.S. to get to. Do you know how big the East India Company was? Yeah. Do you know how small Tonga <laughs> is? Okay. <laughs> like, they were, they were everywhere. They were, but Tonga probably didn't even have, like, basically, Tonga probably didn't have anything that was worth stealing for America or the UK to steal. And you know I'm right. Yeah. It was just not worth killing them. Man, Western civilization's not really great. No. Colonialism. What a crock of shit. Oh, the eighteen, the 1918 flu pandemic brought to Tonga by a ship from New Zealand killed 1,800 Tongans, reflecting a mortality rate of about 8%. Good going, New Zealand. Yeah, way to go, New Zealand. Fucking New Zealand. Always with this shit, New Zealand. Come on. Great about Tongan politics. Oh, as part of cost-cutting measures across the British Foreign Service, the British government closed the British High Commission in Nukualofa in March 2006, transferring representation of British interests to the High Commissioner in Fiji. The last resident British high commander was Paul Nestling. Good to know. Glad to know that there's still so little going on there. England's like, you know what? You just, you do whatever. We're going to be over in Fiji. We'll pop in once in a while. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? Let's just, just leave them alone. Like, there's nothing listen, to do like, here. Like, listen, all of you seem like you're doing it tomorrow. Just a bang up job. We'll be just down the street. Call if you need anything. Please don't call. I mean... In 2006, there were apparently some other changes that might have led to There were a lot why... of changes in 2006, Yeah, apparently. that might have led to them leaving. Oh, going on, like, politically? Yeah. Y'all get ahead of me? A little bit. Oh, yeah, it looks like there was some leadership change in 2006. I just haven't found exactly where it says it yet. Uh, basically, George uh, Tupo V succeeded his father. Okay. Oh, his government made some problematic economic decisions and were accused of wasting millions of dollars. The problems have mostly been driven by attempts to increase revenue through a variety of schemes, such as considering making Tonga a nuclear waste disposal site. Holy shit. And selling Tongan protected persons passport. Schemes also included the registering of foreign ships, which proved to be engaged in illegal activities, including shipments for Al-Qaeda, Claiming geo-orbital satellite slots. Holding a long-term <laughs> charter on an unusable Boeing 757. What? What is going on here? And approving a factory for exporting cigarettes to China against the advice of Tongan medical officials and decades of health promotion messaging. Great. So, I guess it got so bad that the Prime Minister... I'm not even going to pretend to uh, be able to pronounce that name. Uh, resigned suddenly... Gave up his cabinet portfolios, and wow, the uh, the minister of labor replaced him. 
Yeah. On July 5th, 2006, a driver in Menlo Park, California, caused the death of Prince Tupeleki Uluvalu, his wife, and their driver. Tupeleki was the co-chairman of the Constitutional Reform Commission and a nephew of the king. Whoops! Uh, yeah, so that 2006 thing? Uh, oh, it got worse. Yeah, apparently rioting broke out in the capital city uh, when it seemed the parliament would adjourn for the year without having made any advances in increasing democracy in the government. Uh, so they burned and looted shops, offices, government buildings, resulting in more than 60% of the downtown area to be destroyed. Whoa! That is some rioting! The disturbances were ended by action from Tongan security forces and troops from New Zealand. Okay. Okay, New Zealand. You did you did some good. Guys, help. Help, please. So there was a lot going on here. 2006 was a busy year in Tonga. On March 2012, King George Tupos V contracted pneumonia, was brought to the hospital in Hong Kong. I'm glad that they they had to bring him to a hospital in Hong Kong for pneumonia. Like they're not going to fucking be able to help it, him it's, in Tonga. Listen, it's a king. Like, pneumonia, pneumonia sucks. I get it. Like, pneumonia can kill you. It's dangerous. But if you don't have a single hospital in your country that is even equipped to deal with pneumonia... Yeah, but when you're the king... Oh, I should have read the next sentence. He was later diagnosed with leukemia. Oh. <laughs> oh, yep. There you go. <laughs> okay. okay. I retract my statements. Uh, he was succeeded by his... Wait a minute. Wait a minute. What? His health deteriorated significantly shortly thereafter, and he died at 3.15 p.m. on March 18th, 2012. He was succeeded by his brother, Tupo VI, who was crowned on July 4th, 2015? It took three years to handle the succession? If you look up, he was the prime minister. You know, the one who resigned suddenly. Oh. Yeah, so uh, they probably weren't very quick to turn that around. Yeah, they're probably like, you know, you just kind of fucked everything up a few years ago. You just, let's not put you back in charge yet. Okay, so they just didn't have a king for a while then. (laughs) Tonga's foreign policy, as of January 2009, has been described by Matangi Tonga as Look East, specifically as establishing closer diplomatic and economic relations with Asia, which actually lies northwest. (laughs) A little slap from uh, Wikipedia there. A little slap from, you know, cardinal directions. <laughs> Got him. So, uh, the military uh, is very small, uh, but some interesting things. Uh, the Tongan oh. government supported the American Coalition of the Willing action in Iraq and deployed 40-plus soldiers as oh, part of man. an American force in the late 2004. The contingent returned home in December 2004. So how late 2004 are we talking like, did they send them over around Thanksgiving? And they're like, we're here to replace you. And after a few weeks, W is just like, can, can you can you all go home? Please? Yes. And they went home before, and they made it home before Christmas. Yay. Because it's the 17th of December. Tongan involvement concluded at the end of 2008 with no reported loss of life. Hey, hey good for them. Yo, bat in a hundred. Better than pretty much everyone else. I mean, that's an infinite KDR, like kill death ratio. Yeah. Oh, if they totally. killed a single person, infinite. Best on the battlefield. Tonga is subdivided into five administrative divisions, and I'm not going to attempt to pronounce any of them. Wow, look at how static that weather is. Yep, that's uh, that's not changing. Since it's in the southern hemisphere, summer is, you know, November to February that time. Um, so the 
average high in November and December is 81 degrees. The average high in July and June is 77 degrees. So the average high fluctuates about six degrees all year round. And it stays pretty comfortable, you know? Oh, they get a lot of rain, though. Oh, wow. Their their winter, June, July, August, is the dry season, and they're still getting over four inches of rain a month. Average rainy days, 10 to 14 every month. Average humidity, 75 to 80%. No. No. And and it stays the same the entire year, basically. Like Like, you wake up and you don't even, like... Like, let's say you wake up with amnesia, you're like, I have no fucking clue what time of year it is. It's like, oh, it's 85 degrees and 80% humidity and raining. It must be February. (laughs) (laughs) Calendars are very important to the Tongan Empire. Or possibly not at all important. (laughs) Oh, their uh, their penny has a piece of corn on it. Oh, hell yeah, dude. (laughs) It just says Tonga, (laughs) and then an ear of corn, and then the year it was minted. That's their penny. It's nice, basic. I like it. Oh, I thought that was from Ohio for a second. (laughs) (laughs) That would also be appropriate for an Ohio coin. Just corn. Corn and astronauts. Uh, Looking at sports, uh, there's a lot of rugby talk in here. Like, a lot. That doesn't surprise me. I would expect rugby and maybe some cricket. Apparently, their postage stamps feature a lot of colorful and u- unusual designs, and are apparently very popular with uh, philatelists around the world. Philatelists. Philatelists. Okay. Philatelists. To be fair, I didn't know how to pronounce that either. Phil Atlas. Oh, we just gonna just spend the rest of this time just trying to figure out how to pronounce <laughs> philatelines. Philatelines. The flittle tittle. The, the the guys who like the stamps. The stamp people. <laughs> hey, get the stamp people over here. All right. Uh, looks like they do a shitload of fishing, which makes sense since they're an island nation. I'd fucking hope so. Yeah, and they're apparently not very uh, tourist e as a destination. It's apparently very underdeveloped. Oh, yeah. It's interesting. Although, I think that recent Olympics thing, when they changed that. I mean, like, how are you going to want to visit an area? Yeah, like, some of those beaches look nice, but it literally rains a third of the time. That is going to hurt your chances of tourism. Tonga is home to some 106,000 people, but more than double that number live overseas. What? Mainly in the U.S., New Zealand, and Australia. It's really? saying like it's saying like half of all Tongans don't live in Tonga. I mean, that's weird because 2007 is when they actually allowed dual citizenship. Let's become Tongan citizens. <laughs> uh, so in the Olympics, um, aside from rugby, Tonga also produced athletes who competed in summer and winter Olympics. Tonga's only Olympic medal came from the 96 Summer Olympics in Atlanta, where Paya Wolfgram. That is, hmm, that That's name. a good name. Uh, one silver in super heavyweight boxing. One athlete attended the 2018 Winter Olympics in Pyeongchang. Oh, what the hell? There's 20% of Tongans are Mormon? What? 90% of the population are affiliated with a Christian church or sect. The four major church affiliations as follows. 36% the Free Wesleyan Church of Tonga. 18% the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. 
15% Roman Catholics, and 12% the Free Church of Tonga. Huh. They got Mormons. Hmm. Great! Is that what Mar- Free Church means? No, Mormon is the Latter-day Saints. Yeah. Oh, I didn't... Okay, yeah. Yep. Alright, where are we going to jump to from here? We can go look at postage stamps. Could go look at postage Phil, uh, stamps. Phil, uh... Phil, where is that? Philatelists. It's just above agriculture, right near the picture of the humpback whales. Yep, got it. Okay. Alright, philately. I really don't know. Oh, okay, good here. Philately is the way to pronounce it. Okay. Okay, philately. Philately. So, so philatelist. Yeah, philately, philatelist, philatelism. It's that thing you do that involves licking. <laughs> you need to be more specific. I do a lot of <laughs> licking activities. Uh, okay, so before we get into the actual content, I'm looking at the picture on the right of the postage stamp, and there's the B in the lower left, which makes it look like bone penny. <laughs> I love like just the tone of the uh, the third sentence in the the intro paragraph. Philately involves more than just stamp collecting, which does not necessarily involve the study of stamps. Ooh. It's possible to be a philatelist without owning any stamps. Snip snap, guys! I'm a philatelist. I don't own any stamps. Wait, no, I do own stamps. I'll show you a philatelist. Are you a philatophile? Oh do yeah. Do you, do you like the stamps, buddy? I like the ones that are rare. They reside only in museums. Do you like licking the stamps, buddy? And putting them on the letter. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm a philatophobe. Get that shit out of here. The word philately is the English version of the French word philatelie, coined by Georges Herpin in 1864. Herpin stated that stamps had been collected and studied for the previous six or seven years, and a better name was required than timbromany, which he which was disliked. He took the Greek Greek root word philo, meaning an attraction or affinity for something, and atelia, meaning exempt from duties and taxes. <laughs> so really, philatelists are libertarians. They have an affinity for not paying taxes. I just want to know, what does timbromany mean? I have no idea. I'm guessing that's just what stamp <laughs> yeah, collectors... I don't, I don't like that word. They were different. They are alternative terms. Timbromania, timbrophy, timbrology. Gradually fell out of use as philately gained acceptance during the 60s. 1860s. Traditional philately is the study of the technical aspects of the stamp production, including the design process, the paper used, the method of printing, the gum... The gum. The gum. The The method of separation. Any overprints, any security markings, and the study of philatelic fakes and forgeries. That is an awful phrase. Philatelic fakes and forgeries. Say that ten times quick. Yeah, make sure you got your pop filter for that. Oh my god. Right below that, guys, there's multiple types of philately. Oh my god, there's diversification. Thematic philately, also known as topical philately, is the study of what is depicted on the stamps. Postal history studies the postal systems and how they operate, and the study of postage stamps and covers and associated material illustrating historical episodes of postal systems both before and after the introduction of adhesive stamps. Aerophilately is the branch of postal history that specializes in airmail. Really that specific? (laughs) Yeah, Cinderella philately is the study of objects that look like stamps, but are not stamps. What? <laughs> what? 
such as Easter seals, Christmas seals, propaganda labels, and so forth. What? Why? <laughs> I mean, you just, things that are like, oh, this is sort of like a stamp. Throw it in. Call it Cinderella. Oh, that's so like when organizations want you to donate to them and they're like, hey, here you go. We gave you these nice envelope closers that look exactly like stamps. So you're going to put them on your envelope and get your fucking letters returned to you. I mean, people have made like artwork of stamps and such. So I guess you got to put that somewhere. Is that so like, is it kind of like the uh, what do you call it? Like those wax seals on letters? Yeah. Um, it's like wax seals. If you look over, there's like artwork of people doing things like for movies, doing it for like a a cause. I don't know. There's apparently also uh, revenue philately, which is the stamp specifically collecting taxes and fees on things like legal documents, receipts, yeah, tobacco, or like licensing stamps, stuff like that. Tobacco, alcohol, drinks, drugs. Great. Under uh, C also. There's list of notable postage stamps. I'm good. Don't need to read that. That's okay. That's, that's going to put me right to bed. So there are several tools used in philately. Philately? <laughs> including stamp tongs. Stamp tongs. A specialized form of tweezers to They're safely just tweezers. handle They're the just stamps. Tweezers. They're just goddamn tweezers. They're tweezers with smooth jaws. No, guys guys That's i don't it. think you under, i don't think you understand these are special tweezers and oh, they're, they're s- only used for stamps they're okay? smooth tweezers that's all they are but they, they also no. have a strong magnifying glass oh as opposed to the shitty magnifying glass i use for everything else because i want to look at it closely but not very closely but you know when you want to look at a stamp i'm sorry when you want to look at your philately uh Minutia. Minutia. Then you gotta use the strong magnifying glass. And, and a perforation gauge. Adontomer? Adontometer? Adonomatomer? There we go. Okay, it's onomatopoeia. Adonomatoburger. Um, <laughs> to measure the perforation gauge. The perforation gauge? What the fuck does that mean? You know, oh, that, I get yeah, it. The, yeah, the little I, cuts. It's it's basically like the the circumference of each cutout. I get it. Which I'm sure, gonna... like, if you collect stamps, that shit is really important. Oh my god! I bet there's somebody out there who's like, I have collected every single stamp that has a perforation gauge of three point two millimeters. Everyone, I've got at least one of every single one, except that super rare nineteen twelve Norwegian commemorative stamp of the time the prime minister drowned in the toilet. Can't find one of those. Don't even know if it happened, but I know it's out there. <laughs> this is this is the worst party I've ever been to. <laughs> I gotta leave. <laughs> I would love to have commemorative stamps for events that didn't happen. <laughs> oh no, like the uh, like the T-shirts that they make for the Super Bowl losers that get sent off. Yeah, I want a commemorative <laughs> stamp for like Barack Obama's eighth presidential term. <laughs> A uh, commemorative stamp for when uh, Hawaii landed on the moon. The problem is, though, is that by that nature, because that would not be issued by the government, you effectively are a Cinderella philanteler. Mm, I ain't no sol- Cinderella philanteler. All right, Don't you dare call <laughs> me a Cinderella philanteler. Number one, how dare you? Number two, how dare you? <laughs> all right where the hell are we going from here 
We could probably do like two more jumps today. Uh, this is the Pony Express. We could read about the Pony Express. Yeah, let's do that. The Pony Express was a mail service delivering messages, newspapers, and mail around the 1860s. Particularly delivering ponies. Yes, they delivered ponies uh, as well. I don't know about that one. They, they overnighted horses. That's how it worked. Yeah, well, I mean, here's the thing. You could kill two birds with one stone. Be like, uh, I need mail from Jefferson, and I need a record of the sale of the pony that I'm buying from him, and also the pony. <laughs> <laughs> you just gotta ride the horse to him, like, here's your horse. Like, you rode this horse to death. Yep, sure did. Horse just keels over dead. Here's your bill. Mind giving me a horse to ride back? We're the Pony Express. We're the fastest mail service in the West. Oh, man. Look at this Pony Express advertisement on the right. Pony Express. Ten days to San Francisco. Letters will be received at the office, 84 Broadway, New York, up to 4 p.m. every Tuesday and up to 2 and a half p.m. every Saturday. Real talk, though, ten days? They, that's, uh, that's pretty impressive. By horse, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. Because how far is it from San Francisco to New York? Uh, about 3,000 miles. Damn! Yeah, 2,900 miles. So, 10 days. Yeah, because they're not going in a straight line. No, 300 miles a day. So, if you assume that the rider is only riding for... Like, if you assume the rider is riding for 15 hours a day, it's still 20 miles an hour a whole damn day. That's really fast. I'm starting to believe that that's not true. I mean, perfect weather conditions, I could see it being realistic. It's not like he's riding one horse. He's changing out horses every couple hours. Yeah, but that doesn't seem sustainable. Why doesn't it seem sustainable? Because it seems like like a lot of shit can happen between <laughs> fucking San well, Francisco and New York. I mean, well, it's saying best case scenario. Well, hold on. They actually discussed this. Uh, they used a short route. They used mounted riders rather than stagecoaches. Many people actually said 10 days was literally impossible. Uh, but they had 120 riders, 184 stations, and 400 horses. Damn. So, you know, they had some resources going for them. You know, they, they've got a lot of points you can stop off, change a horse, and get there. Yeah, or even trade it off. Like, I bet you yeah. basically one rider would just go balls out for three hours, stop, and be like, all right, here's the bag. Continue on. The, the guy who ran it was a religious man and presented each rider with a special edition Bible and required their oath, which they were required to sign. The oath was, I, your name, do hereby swear before the great and living God that during my engagement and while I am an employee of Russell, Majors, and Waddle, I will, under no circumstances, use profane language, that I will drink no intoxicating liquors, that I will not quarrel or fight with any other employee of the firm, and that in every respect I will conduct myself honestly, be faithful to my duties, and so direct all my acts as to win the confidence of my employers, so help me God. So as long as you worked there, you couldn't curse, you couldn't drink, and you couldn't fight. In the 1800s, that's all the fun there is to have. What are they? What else are they supposed to do? I guess they're just supposed to fuck. No, no. This is this is why they were so fast. That was the only. Else to do. That was the only thrill they could get. I need to go as quick as possible. I got a need for speed. <laughs> How does it get there in ten days? The answer is Jesus. Jesus. 
Oh, yeah. In 1860, there were about 186 Pony Express stations. They were about 10 miles apart along the Pony Express route. At each station, the rider would change to a fresh horse, taking only the mail pouch with him. Yeah. There you go. The employers stressed the importance of the pouch. They often said that if it came to be, the horse and rider should perish before the pouch should. Holy crap. Bundles of mails were placed in it. It could hold 20 pounds of mail, along with the 20 pounds of material carried on the horse. Eventually, everything except one revolver and a water sack was removed, allowing for a total of 165 pounds on the horse. Riders could not weigh over 125 pounds and changed about every 100 miles and rode day and night. Well, there you go. That's how you get there in 10 days. It is unknown if riders tried crossing the Sierra Nevada in winter, but they certainly crossed central Nevada. <laughs> they tried. A rider received $100 a month as pay. That's a lot of money. A comparable wage for unskilled labor at the time was about a dollar a day. So that's triple. More than three times, maybe even more than five times what you could make doing anything else. That's some good money, man. Yeah. Government jobs early on. So there was apparently uh, a lot of attacks that happened as well. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, the Paiute War was a minor series of raids and ambushes initiated by the Paiute. I'm assuming I'm saying that right. Paiute Indian tribe in Nevada, which resulted in the disruption of mail services. Oh, uh-oh. It's going to break the 10 days. Listen, the mail always gets through. Nothing stops the mail. I, I know that there's like through wind, through rain, through snow. I didn't know if that mentions war. In that, in that <laughs> through thing. assault yeah does it does it mention war uh, i don't know through arrows through swords through guns and iron i will get you that letter that is your romantic diatribe about how much you want to be under the petticoats of a certain lass it's a letter just talking about how much their boss sucks it's <laughs> gotta get there in 10 days in the brief history that the pony express operated only once did the mail not go through. Holy shit! Okay, and it was across three years or so. It said it was like nine. It was like eighteen sixty or no nine years, eighteen sixty to like eighteen sixty nine. Uh, after completing eight weekly trips from both Sacramento and St. Joseph, the Pony Express was forced to suspend mail services because of the outbreak of the Paiute War, Indian War, in May eighteen sixty. So yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good way. That's a good reason to, you know, stop, you know, potential death. Holy shit. During the brief war, one Pony Express mailing, which left San Francisco on July 21st, 1860, did not immediately reach its destination. That mail pouch did not reach subsequently, did not reach New York until almost two years later. What? What happened in those two years? I don't know. A lot of stuff happened in that two years. That letter's seen some shit, man. But the mail always goes through. <laughs> a famous advertisement allegedly read, Wanted. Young, skinny, wiry fellows not over 18. Must be expert riders willing to risk death daily. Orphans preferred. <laughs> Orphans? Orphans preferred. Whoa! Not over 18? Okay, uh, how does it get there? The answer is Jesus and child labor. Yeah. <laughs> Only the youth shall apply. The Pony Express had an estimated 80 riders traveling east or west along the route at any given time. Um, just skipping through some of the uh, the famous rider stuff. 
Arthur Mark Twain described the writers in his travel memoir, Roughing It, as usually a little bit of a man. <laughs> what is that mean? Damn. Oh, man. That's fucking rude. I mean, they were like orphaned boys under 18. Yeah, they had fuck all else to do with their lives, so. Yeah. Oh, hi, Buffalo Bill. What's going on? Pony Bob. <laughs> His greatest ride, 120 miles in eight hours while wounded. What? And the mail carried Lincoln's inaugural address. Oh, oh shit. Oh, well, that's why. It was important. He received the eastbound mail, probably the May 10th mail from San Francisco, at Friday's station. When he reached Buckland Station, his relief rider was so badly frightened over the Indian threat, he refused to take the mail. Haslam agreed to take the mail all the way to Smith's Creek for a total of 190 miles without rest. After a rest of nine hours, he retraced his route into the westbound mail where, at Cold Springs, he found that Indians had raided the place, killing the station keeper and running off all the stock. On that ride, he was shot through the jaw with an arrow, oh losing my God. three teeth. He f- oh my God. Finally, he reached Buckland Station, making the 380-mile round trip the longest on record. What a God. Freaking Pony Bob, man. He uh, continued to work as a writer after the Civil War, scouted for the U.S. Army well into his 50s, and later accompanied his good friend, Buffalo Bill Cody, on a diplomatic mission to negotiate the surrender of Chief Sitting Bull in 1890. That's just wild. You just come from the U.K., you end up here as a teenager, and you end up delivering an inaugural dress getting shot through the mouth. Like, that guy had some stories. Can you imagine getting shot in the mouth with an arrow and being like, well... Still got a hundred miles. The mail must go through. <laughs> Guess I better just get to it. The saddest part about this is that he drifted in and out of public mention, but eventually died in Chicago during the winter of 1912, age 72, in deep poverty after suffering a stroke. Yeah, I mean, we still do that to people these days. Like, um, we just don't take care of our heroes once they are no longer in the public eye, once they no longer matter to us. We just kind of forget about them until either the news does an expose on them or they die. And yeah. we go, oh, I didn't know he was living there. Oh, shit. I used to love that TV show he was in back in the 80s. That's so what happens with the medical system. You know, you suffer something that costs too much and it just all goes. That's it. You're in poverty now. Jack Keatley is another one. Oh, he was hired at the age of 19. That's a grizzled veteran for the Pony Express. 19? Ooh, Ooh. I thought it had to be 18 or under. This he, is... Hold on a second here. He lied on his application. <laughs> Jack Keatley's longest ride, upon which he doubled back for another rider, ended at Seneca, where he was taken from the saddle sound asleep. He had ridden 340 oh. miles in 31 hours without stopping to rest or eat. Yeah, uh, so here's, here's why this... Uh, Service only lasted for three years. Uh, Everyone died constantly. No, well that too, but uh, also the American <laughs> Civil War. Oh, that's a good reason. Oh, yeah. yeah okay. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yep. yep. Uh, they announced their closure two days after the Transcontinental Telegraph reached Salt Lake City. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, yep, they it was business going to be gone. Yep. It was also a financial failure. Uh, having grossed ninety thousand and lost two hundred thousand. That's a Oof. big sum in the eighteen sixties. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, war, better communication, and financial ruin. This sounds like a typical government program. 
Yeah. But it had heroes, goddammit. So, to give you an idea of the inflation, the U.S. inflation calculator only goes back to 1913, but $200,000 in 1913 is over $5 million today. And going back another, what's that, 50 years? Yep. Ooh, (laughs) that's a lot of money. Especially considering, you know, a dollar a day was good money back then. Oh, so so this is interesting. I didn't know this, but um, 1866, after the Civil War was over, Holiday sold the Pony Express assets, assets along with the remnants of the Butterfield stage to Wells Fargo. So mm-hmm. Wells Fargo owns Pony Express. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's why the uh, logo. Yeah, Wells Fargo was originally like a um, like a telegraph service, kind of like Western Union. Yeah. I just didn't know that you know they were uh, that that Pony Express was taken by them. Yeah, they they own the they own that. They could technically give you a Pony Express credit card. Oh fuck yeah! I don't oh wanna, dude, I don't want to give Wells Fargo any business, but I do want a Pony Express credit card. I just want to buy a buy it so I can just be like, you know what? I did I did my duties because I know the mail must go on. Be like. Uh, they send you an email. You will get your card in 10 days. Trust us. <laughs> you will absolutely get your card in 10 days. It will be delivered by a teenage boy on a horse. An exhausted, <laughs> starving teenage boy on a horse with an arrow in his face. Oh, in 1869, the U.S. Post Office issued the first U.S. postage stamp to depict an actual historic event. And the subject that was chosen was the Pony Express. Until then, only the faces of George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, and Andrew Jackson were found on postage. Huh. Pony Express, changing it up, man. Changing the game. So I think we've got time for one more article, maybe? So, under C also, there is something called Urtu. Urtu? Urtu. Urtu. I kind of want to go to that. It's a messenger route used by Genghis Khan. Ooh. Okay. That's a that's a hard shift. Let's do it. It's a short article too, so that's good. Yeah, it's not a volcano. So it's it's in English spelled yam. What? Okay. But in Mongolian it's ortu. It just means checkpoint, by the yeah. way. <laughs> Was the supply point route messenger system employed and extensively used by Genghis Khan. Relay stations were used to give food, shelter, and spare horses to messengers. Genghis Khan gave special attention to Yam because Mongol armies traveled very fast, so their messengers had to be even faster, covering up to 300 kilometers a day. Ooh. I think they may have us beat, guys. The Mongols, I think, were faster than we are. The damn Mongols. They did a lot of things right. They were very fast, very fast people. The Yam operated a chain of relay stations at certain distance to each other, usually 20 to 40 miles apart. Messengers would go to the next relay station and give the information to the second messenger and rest, and let the second messenger go to the third relay station to hand the document to the third messenger. Yep, that makes sense. Very, you know, very ordered process there. Like The operation of the system was regulated by the written law Yasa, the Ooh. secret written code of law created by Genghis Khan. That's Fuck. pretty awesome. It's been described in great detail by... Giovanni de Pen de Carpan, William right, of Ruprick, Marco Jesus. Polo, and Ulrich of Pordene. Both messengers and station operators enjoyed extended privileges. Even for everyone else, the requirements of the YAM took precedence before other duties and interests, and they must support it whenever it became necessary. 
Like, huh. could you imagine just like, you know, that busted kid with an arrow in his face, like comes up to your house. He's like, I'm part of the or two and I'm dying. You need to deliver this message to the next relay station. And you'd be like, all right, well, I guess I'm dropping what I'm doing and doing that. Yes. Drop everything I'm doing. We got to go do this. You got to do it for the con. Each writer had a paisa. The paisa was an engraved metal pendant, usually circular or rectangular, and it symbolized that they were messengers of the con. Oh, apparently Russian czars were like, no. Nah, we'll czars? Czars? Russian czars. Czars. Czar. Czar? Czar. Russian czars. Crown Royale <laughs> Texas Mesquite Whiskey, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even have that much, but I'm feeling it. Uh, but they apparently kept it going uh, for quite a while after. Yeah. They were, yeah, they were like, nope, that's a good system. Even though we got rid of your Golden Horde, we're going to keep this. Your Golden Horde trash, but your mail system, very nice. This this so true. We'd like to use it. This so true. I like it. I should make it Coachman mine. Coachman forming yam service were called Yamshya. Many major Russian city have whole suburbs, Slobolas, settled by Yamshik and called Yamskaya Slobola. Okay. My god. <laughs> Please, don't do that ever yeah. again. <laughs> the name Yam was adopted in most Western languages from Russian, where it is probably a Turkic loanword. The Turkic word root, again, is related to the Mongolian Zam, road or way. I don't think you can loan words. You can. That's the thing. Are you not familiar with the concept of loan words? Yeah, that happens all the time. Yeah, but like, you're, you're not getting it back. Uh, <laughs> okay, I see what you're saying. Like, Turkey's not going to go to Russia and be like, hey. Can we have our yams back? Can we have our yams back? <laughs> Please give me back my yams. I need to use it to talk about the road. All right. So I think that's it for the day. Uh, so what did we start on again? Lake Toba. Lake Toba. We started on Lake Toba and ended on Yam Route. Not Yam Potato. So Yam Route. That one went pretty well, I think. Uh, again, big thanks to Crown Royale for this mesquite whiskey. I'm going to have a little bit more after we end the podcast, actually. I'm already it's... pretty toasty. I don't know. Are you toasty or are you smoky? Oh, I'm smoky. I am I'm mesquite <laughs> <laughs> Mosquito. Skeet, skeet. All right. Uh, so again, thank you for <laughs> Let's listening. Get here. Let's get the hell out of here. Um, thanks everybody for listening. Bye. Cheers. Bye. <laughs>